All right, Corkies, we are back again for another episode. This week, we have none other than Dr. Karen Dahl. She is really a doll. <laughs> if y'all are on our YouTube channel, you can see her. If you are listening via any of our social media um, streams of uh, Apple or um, any of the other ones, feel free to jump over to YouTube so you can see this beautiful woman. She is going to help us do some mental workout. She is all about building your psychological fitness, and she is here today to help us do that. And I hope we are able to sustain this workout because I am not a workout type chick. So, <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully, mentally, we can do that. So, welcome, welcome, welcome. Dr. Karen Dahl. What a lovely introduction. Thank you with such gratitude and hello to your, to your loyal corkies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So um, before we mess anyone up, right, let's right off the bat. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. So uh, I'm Karen Dahl. I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm a psychologist. I have always been uh, a consultant working on mental health in the workplace. So I do a lot of coaching. Um, more importantly, I have uh, my husband of 25 years, which we're celebrating on Tuesday, and uh, five young adult, teenage to young adult children. That's amazing. See, now I want to ask you and shift gears to a whole nother podcast and ask <laughs> about your marriage and being married for 25 years. Oh my goodness kudos oh well it's it's just been bliss and joy 25 <laughs> years of bliss and joy wow bliss and joy yeah okay. no i'm 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 kidding and i'm not but in one of, in one of my bios somebody helped me write like raising five kids being married and raising five kids and having three dogs is how i build my psychological fitness mm. ah <laughs> okay okay i like it i like it a lot okay well our very own ariel just celebrated a milestone of her own yes just one year um oh, but my congrats. goal yeah thank you um yeah that's a big one <laughs> yeah that's a big one <laughs> thank you congrats to you as well that's amazing 25 years Yes. Yeah. So it can be done. That's all I done. That's what excites me about hearing the numbers is that it can be done. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So let's dive in. Can you define psychological fitness for our listeners, for our corkies? Sure. Yes. So I use the term psychological fitness really to describe uh, all of mental health and well-being. So this would include factors of wellness, um, mental, emotional, spiritual, and social well-being. And the term psychological fitness, I really um, tried to make the book or the idea accessible to people mm -hmm. so that we can think about how we have agency over our mental health and what can we do to move not only like from a place of distress and not only just to neutral, but to really a place of like a plus 10 thriving and flourishing. So I tried to make it, you know, uh, a desirable 
state or something to pursue. And I hope my message is that we all can take action and move some levers and do th some things that can enhance our well-being and mental health. Who did you write the book for? Like, is there a certain population that you were looking at when you wrote the book or, you know? Well, I generally work with professionals. So I, I call most of my clients high achieving professionals. And so that was, you know, really originally who I was writing the book for just because that's my, my key audience. That being said, it's really for anybody because we all have mental health. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was working with some of the language with the title, there were some people, including my publisher, frankly, who didn't like the title because he said, well, it doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm good. And I thought, well, okay, this is why we need a book like this is to foster a little bit more awareness that mental health isn't just the absence of mental illness. And expanding our, our understanding of what mental health is, I think, is really important. So I think that it applies to anybody. And I try to make the information practical and accessible. So even if you come away with one little thing or one little tidbit or nugget, that can accelerate the enhancement of your well-being. I love so that. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so you mentioned that one little nugget, right? So what type of impact are you hoping to make, if any, like that? You know, what I, yeah, my, I mean, part of like my mission is to promote awareness of mental health. And what I long to see and desire to see is that we make talk, talking about psychological fitness and mental health just as mainstream as our physical fitness. So people are very quick to share about their gym memberships and they went to yoga and they went, they have their running club and that's awesome. And I think it will also be great when we talk about our mental health supports and coaches and therapists and peer groups and teachers and people that are helping us with our mental health. And that becomes just as mainstream. Do you think that's changed any, I, I, I get the feeling that it's changed a lot, especially with the pandemic. Um, do you think that it's gotten better? Do you think that we still have a long ways to go? Like, how do you feel like we are doing so far as a society, as far as talking about mental health and having it become mainstream? We have certainly made progress. And in, especially in the workplace, there certainly is more conversation and attention towards mental health and whole person being. Mm -hmm. um, I think we still have a lot of work to do. I think companies are committed. Most companies, um, if you ask them, of course, they're gonna say, yes, we would like to support and promote the mental health and flourishing of our, of our employees. Uh, yet, and a lot of change still needs to take place you know, in an organization at a infrastructure and systemic level and managers still need to learn more, leaders still need to learn more about how they best create conditions for people to succeed. And then we as individuals still need to continue building self-awareness of what, what are the most important things that we need to do to care for ourselves and, and promote thriving and flourishing. So yes, and there still is stigma and you know what the energy that I had around publishing this book, I, I put it together during COVID. And it was really just from this, this notion of sadness that, that I had around hearing how isolated people feel 
And not only because of the quarantining and the physical isolation, but just how alone people felt in their emotional struggles. And I talked, I have the privilege of hearing this from people every day. Uh, yet, Anne, I am still blown away by the, the aloneness that people feel in their experience. And so I think that, you know, having conversations like this and, and any way that we can promote that conversation and give people permission to reach out and ask for help and understand you aren't the only one. It's very easy to, to slip into assuming everybody else has it figured out. And why is it so hard for me? In your research for your book, uh, did you learn anything about yourself or your personal life journey? I love this question. Nobody's asked me this question. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Um, the, the short answer is, uh, is this acceptance of just acknowledging the human struggle that we're all in. And so I write about here are the obstacles, here are the things that get in the way of our flourishing and thriving. And it, it's sort of just a reminder that that's universal. Much of that is universal. You know, we all have a fear of judgment. We all have a fear of not being accepted. We all long to belong. And it just manifests and shows up differently with all of us. So um, I'm, I'm continually looking for the answer to this question. Like, how do we just figure this out? And I get the question a lot too. Like, what's that? I need like a hack. What's, a, what's like one thing you can tell me to do to manage my whole mental health and well-being? And which I appreciate, but you know, it's the wrong question because of course there isn't one thing. But I think what I've learned is just continuing to give myself permission to know that it's just a journey and a process. It's not an event. Mm -hmm. And I found um, a few weeks ago, I found old, an old pile of journals that I had. I'm 50 years old. And these were probably from when I was 25 or in my early 20s. And I was reading it and it was like, this could have been yesterday. Some of the stuff that was in there, I'm like, have I grown and developed and learned anything? And certainly I have, but it was just kind of a reminder that we drift, we get off course, we course correct, and we do this silly thing of self-sabotage. Mm. There are many things that we all know we should be doing or could be doing or would be good for us to do and we don't, or things that we know we shouldn't do that we still do. So it's complicated. So yeah. I think what I've learned is listening to myself, like I try to share with my clients too, is just in the process, having some self-compassion and hope and permission to know that we're going to drift. And then we just get back on track. Mm -hmm. I love that. So what do you describe, what you describe appears to be on the surface requires a substantial amount of willpower. Like, do you feel like what it describes is attainable for the regular thinker to achieve? Like, like just everyday person, can they do what you're describing? So yes, I, I love this question too, because sometimes you know, you listen to podcasts about like, these are the greatest people and the most successful people and the people that have accomplished crazy things. And it's like, well, what about the, what about us like normal people, like regular people? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so here's what I would say. I mean, yes, there, there is a mental health continuum and it's dynamic and fluid. 
And on one end, and this is going to simplify it a little bit, but on one end would be like the green zone where people are thriving and flourishing. They feel pretty good. They're pretty healthy. They're generally effective. They find purpose and meaning in their lives. They have a strong sense of belonging. You know, those buckets are, are you know, tend to be pretty full. Uh, and then there are there's the mid range of the mental health continuum, which might be like the orange or yellow zone where people may be functioning. In fact, I think a lot of people probably fall into this um, category is they're functioning and effective and maybe even very high performing, yet sort of miserable, mm-hmm. unsatisfied or discontent or exhausted, burned out, stressed. And then the red zone, of course, is just if if you have a mental illness, a diagnosable mental illness, or when we're talking about like the clinical range. So the thing is, it is the mental health continuum. It's just something to map against. And it's a way to take inventory, do some self-assessment and observation of what is going on with me today, this week, this month, this year. And then using that to determine what are the interventions that we need. So how much support do we need? And there are plenty of people that have mental illness that is successfully treated and they're thriving and flourishing. Mm -hmm. So if, if people have untreated mental illness, then we just look to a different number, as you both know, different, different types of interventions and, and treatment and right size therapy. So I really believe no matter where we are on that, there are things we can do to just, even if it's just a little deposit or just move the needle a little bit. And I consider the book and, and the research and the practices and the things that I that I talk about just as like a menu of options. So we're all different. We're all unique. It isn't like do all these 25 things in your morning routine. It's here's a little psychoeducation on what helps regulate our stress response system. What are some positive psychology practices? What are some things we can do in our community? So it's consider it like a menu of options. And then we all pick and choose what we think is going to be most useful and helpful and impactful. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the work is not doing rather than just doing more things. Dr. Dahl, you're saying so many things <laughs> that I want to respond to. First, uh, this, this, the, the middle zone, this, this where you can have what I hear of highs and lows and be functioning but not functioning. And and in your book, you you reference self-awareness and being aware, right? And so what about the people who don't have awareness and consider when they are in this still functioning highly, still living, but not feeling very good emotionally and mentally um, and think that this is maybe the best or really is the norm? How do we expose them, expose to them and educate them to know this isn't really how you really should be feeling and push the needle towards more of a green? type of life. Yeah, so it's kind of like how do we how do we get people to engage in some prospection that maybe it could be better? Maybe it doesn't need to be this hard or feel this hard. Yes. 
Um, I use just that language. Now, first of all, if people are coming to coaching, generally they have some sort of interest in gener- in self-discovery or generating some self-awareness. So there's an element of readiness there. Yes. But not everybody comes to coaching and not everybody has the p- privilege of engaging, engaging with a coach. Yeah. Um, hopefully that's going to be more accessible too. you know, any element of support that, that we can give to offer people, whether it's therapy or coaching or peer coaching is, I think there's great opportunity there. Um, but helping people understand how it could be better. And sometimes, unfortunately, what it takes is a very acute problem to surface that they no longer can ignore. So, you know, if somebody comes and says, oh my gosh, I'm bleeding to death. Okay, let's find this. Let's stop the bleeding first before we start talking about how you're going to thrive and flourish. And again, that's where it's important to understand um, where is the pain or the pressure point? How acute is it? Uh, I think what happens, unfortunately, is... Uh, there can be moderate stressors, but over time, without the proper rest and recovery, they become chronic. And I think that's where people are the most at risk for being in that mid zone and drifting into the red zone. Mm. It's kind of like you know the frog in the boiling pot of water. Mm-hmm. If you put, if you throw the the frog in water that's boiling, it'll jump out. But if you put the frog in and slowly heat it up, it won't necessarily know the difference. And that's, I mean, that's how I consider, you know, the impact of chronic stress and people that are at risk for experiencing burnout. It becomes sort of their baseline. Okay, so rest and recovery. Right. And to the everyday person, right, we're trying to make this applicable to them. Is that what the buzzword, you know, everyone knows about self-care now these days. Mm-hmm. And so would rest and recovery be that self-care that we're all hearing about now? Or would it be more? Yes. Well, I think so. I think self-care is good. I mean, I consider that that is taking care of oneself and and taking care of your wellness and well-being, which which I think is getting rest and drinking water and and getting exercise and connecting with other humans and doing those things. I don't think of it as sometimes what we think of consumerism Mm self-care, like going to get a manicure or pedicure. That's a pleasant experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that can be confusing Mm -hmm. because we can't do, we can't have um, an activity like that undo the effects of, of overwork and mismanaged stress. So self, I think how we regard ourselves is really important. And that's what I think of like self-compassion. And I try to say that in the book, like this is not about judging ourselves and evaluating and being hard on ourselves. Like, oh, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. But really just engaging in some introspection and understanding what are the patterns and trends and behaviors in my life that are serving me and what aren't. And where can I make reasonable, small, incremental changes? Um, and yes, that is involves managing our own psychology. And we all know, I mean, a human limitation is we only have so much resource in a 24-hour period. If we don't rest, we will literally die. But we sometimes forget that, you know, in this, in the culture that we're in of hustle, do more, optimize, 
be efficient, be as yeah. productive as possible. It's sort of conflicting messaging. Yes. And people will say, well, I'll sleep when I die. But it's like, no, that's not healthy, right? So mm -hmm. I like what you just said about that. Yeah, and we're learning more and more and more and more about brain health. Um, every year, they're learning more about neuroscience and brain health and the impact that lack of rest has on our brain as well. I mean, we know that it's taxing to our body, but it's the same with our brain. If we don't rest, we have bad brain. If we rest and recover and take breaks, it's good brain. Would you say that chronic stress and workplace burnout is avoidable or is it inevitable for some people? Um, I Yes, I, I think it is avoidable. Um, is it avoidable in all work situations? Perhaps not. So a lot, I mean, really what contributes to burnout is mismanaged workplace stress. And we all have a responsibility to manage our own mental health and psychology and stress and set boundaries and whatnot. Yet um, the contributors of burnout really tend to be just overwork and unreasonable work demands. And when there's a demand capacity imbalance so more is required of the human than is humanly possible to give in a healthy way. So there's a lot of conversation about this, like whose responsibility is it? And it's shared accountability. An employer, the leaders, managers, employees, it's shared accountability. Um, I think what has gotten confusing in the messaging is that sometimes, and I think we're moving past this, but companies will say, here's like a wellness program. Here's a meditation app and you can go to yoga and you can do all these things, which are great. We know that those are beneficial to mental health yet. And if it doesn't solve the root of the problem of the demand capacity or having too much work to do, it's like the wrong, it's the wrong, it's not appropriate. It's not an appropriate suggestion because that can't do undo overwork or a toxic workplace. So yes, I think it's avoidable. I think that we need to manage our own mental health. We need to set boundaries. We need to understand what we're able to do in a healthy way and what we're not, and to be able to communicate and have conversations that, you know, this is okay with me and this is not okay with me. And leaders can say, well, this is what is required. And we have choice. And, you know, perhaps ind certain individuals aren't able to thrive in, in certain work cultures. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people feel like they really have a choice or empowered to go to their leadership about the work environment in general? I think it's mixed. I mean, I, you know, I, I hope that there will be more platforms for that safe conversation or brave conversation to happen. But yeah, it's that there's a fear of what will happen if I say something. I mean, that's what keeps people quiet. What if my boss thinks I can't handle it? What if I don't, they don't want to put me up for the promotion? What if my team doesn't think I'm supportive? They're stressed out. I don't want to stress them out. So all of those fears really are, are what tend to keep people quiet. And yeah, in some, some situations, there is the risk of retaliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I, I also saw there's sometimes not even burnout, but it's the opposite. And I don't know if y'all have ever seen on social media, there's this guy um, who was an overperformer. 
and he, and it didn't bother him. It wasn't taxing to him at all, but he was never uh, reinforced or rewarded for his performance. And then he decided uh, when they told him HR that he wasn't going to be rewarded for that, that he was going to become just a regular, regular status quo employee. And so then the following year when they did his performance evaluation, they asked him, well, what happened to you? And he responded, because I wasn't rewarded, I decided to become a regular status quo employee. And they were shocked by his response, but there was nothing that they could do because that's, and he literally said, this is the environment in which you created. Mm -hmm. mm. And like, it's, it's, I'm sure he's got a million plus views, but it's, I think it goes to your point of what the employers create as far as the environment for the employees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, those culture dynamics start at the top. That mm -hmm. they start at the top for sure. Yeah. And you know, this is it's not a popular thing for me to say, but I continue to say it. And that is, you know, most organizations are set up to take as much from you as they're willing as you're willing to give. So it's not to say that all employers are evil or that leaders are evil, but if you think about it. They're, they're generally not running around saying, stop bringing so much value and here's a bucket of money. That's generally not what's happening. Mm -hmm. So most leaders obviously don't want their people to be stressed out and burned out either. But, you know, we do all have a different capacity and, uh, and different priorities and, and values and, and choices that we can make for how, how we want to live. But generally... Um, there's something that, that I refer to as like silent warriors. And that is just what we were talking about is the people that are, don't want to say anything for all the reasons. Um, so then they end up continuing to do all the things, but then sort of kill themselves in the process. Mm -hmm. And the impact of chronic stress on our, our mental and physical health is, is real. I mean, it's diseases of despair. It's, there's no denying the, the contribution that it has to illness and ill health. Mm -hmm. When working with managers, do you feel the majority of them are in tune with their employees' mental health needs? If not, like, could you give some suggestions? I know it's not a catch-all, but like, how could they start maybe the conversation? So supporting managers and leaders and organizations is um, is really relevant right now, and especially middle managers, where they are kind of in that pressure place of getting um, initiatives and strategies and expectations from upwards from their leaders. And then they're also managing teams and seeing people on the front lines who are experiencing a lot of exhaustion and overwork and all the uncertainty and everything that we've all gone through in the last few years. Um, so I think the support of managers and helping them understand how to navigate through all of this is really like the future of workforce support. And they do not need to be therapists. They are not there to solve all of the mental health problems. Yet a lot is expected of them right now. So I do think that there that that is that's one mechanism that we can accelerate how to help organizations and 
um, leaders and managers manage mental health at work. And some companies are doing some, making some changes where they're even including well-being as part of their elements of well-being as part of their performance metrics. Hmm. So that employees and managers are saying like, we're, we're saying this whole person stuff matters so much that we're actually gonna include it in your performance. And so there are all kinds of new tools and, and mechanisms and trainings and ways to help managers have some of those conversations. Uh, but really, in really simple, simple terms, what people want is to be valued. They want to know they matter at work. They want to know that their work matters and their work is valued. And so even showing up at work managing a team with that top of mind every day, that in and of itself will move the needle. That's heavy. I think it's this is stuff we can crowdsource. I mean, we can we can all crowdsource. If you think of, um, you know, we all know we know we have a shortage of clinicians, and we need more systems and more mental health professionals. And hopefully, we'll get some things put in place to to help account for that. Um, yet, and I also think there there are plenty of other ways to offer each other support in just real regular human accompaniment ways. So if you think of this idea of accompaniment, it's like we're all in this together and one person isn't gonna have one answer or an expert and we can all support each other going through that. So regardless of what level you are in a company, the concept of accompaniment still is relevant. Mm And I just think we we need to lean into that and the power of connection and supporting each other in whatever ways that we can, even if we don't, if we're not all therapeutic experts. Yeah, I love that. So in your book, you mentioned a MKO, a more knowledgeable other. How many people are missing an MKO in their life? I find it funny that you brought that up or that like you noticed that I <laughs> has ever brought that part of the book up. Um, so I, so what I think uh, is like reinforcing the idea of growth mindset when we're approaching any of these challenges and issues, just remaining open that we are curious and willing to learn and, and have knowing that we have some agency mm -hmm. over these things. And that openness and coming from a place of inquiry rather than coming from a place of judgment or all knowing will help us learn more how to manage our mental health. Mm -hmm. So putting ourselves around others that we are able to learn from, which frankly could be anybody because you know something I don't know. Each of you has had an experience I haven't had mm -hmm. and how we can share that to learn and grow. It's like collective genius. Mm -hmm. And beyond just the knowing and the information part, I also like to think, going back to the accompaniment, I also like to think about, you know, consider who are the upper companions in your life. So who are the people that it is serving you to be in relationship with? Mm. And who, and I don't mean serving you in terms of a status, but I mean serving you in terms of like filling your bucket 
and having reciprocity and mutuality and two-way support. Mm -hmm. And who are the individuals that are lower companions that drain our battery? So if you think of like relationships can be energy boosters and they can be energy drainers. And some of those relationships are negotiable and some aren't. So with the lower companion, do you suggest that we fade away from them over time? Or do you feel like having them in our life is still beneficial to some degree? I think it depends. Um, it depends. So if somebody has a child, who feels like a lower companion, for example, is it advisable to just disregard the child? No, of course not. There isn't a world that that's gonna be a great option or a healthy option, um, unless people's safety are, is compromised. So, you know, if you think of relationships that are in your life and not a current option to disregard them in your life, you just, I think of like the idea of healthy detachment and setting, boundaries and setting emotional boundaries yeah because we we can it's a practice to not pick up the emotion or the negativity or the toxicity of somebody else's behavior and that also can be developed it's like their behavior is about them not me I absolutely love that you just stated that it's a practice because some people find it so hard to do but they are not practicing Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I use the term learning partners in the book, which is like code for people we find to be difficult. <laughs> who you find to be difficult is probably going to be different than what type of person I find to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that you might not want to be so quick to get away from, but actually stick it, stick it, stick in it maybe for a little bit so that you can learn how to learn whatever it is that you need to learn from them or learn about yourself maybe um potentially yeah. which is not advocating for emotional abuse or disregard or disrespect it's it's not that but sometimes people are annoying and agitating mm -hmm. and and that could be our problem too yes mm -hmm. yes i always tell people like people are like who lack patience for example Right, you're never gonna learn how to be patient if you don't practice patience. And the only way to practice patience is being in environments or situations in which your your patience, excuse me, is tested. Um, so you can't say you want to learn how to be patient unless that's tested. Yeah, exposure that's therapy. <laughs> oh goodness, this is good stuff. So. What about someone who doesn't have a a person or people? How do they get a person? Um, people are everywhere. <laughs> I mean, like go to the grocery so store. And it's maybe I'm I'm counsel some difficult people, maybe. I I'm, I'm trying to get help for my <laughs> These are the questions that I get asked, literally. Do you how get do you these questions, Mario? Like, what kind of questions? Like, well, how do I find people? Um, not yeah. really. No, just me. I, <laughs> I, people, I got people that I have that have social anxiety, but I don't have that many people like that. Um, but okay. those are where I get those questions from. Like, where do I find people? Like, how do I make conversation? Like, what do I talk about? You know, um, I get those kind of questions. 
Well, there's a practical element to the question. Um, and, and then there's a psychological element to the question, but I mean, people are everywhere. So I shop at Target and there is a woman, Frenny, who works at Target that I have seen there for years. And I have a relationship with her from shopping there for 15 years. Like she's one of my people and I see her at Target. Like everybody goes to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think right now with the digital world and coming out of COVID, there are some complications and there are some certainly factors that have gotten in the way. And I think people got out of practice a little bit and that's scary to go back out into the world and socialize if you're already somebody that has social anxiety and then we haven't flexed the muscle, that is real. But it really, it only takes a couple people. We don't need 58 close friends. We just need a few relationships to cultivate. Mm -hmm. And that makes a, it's, it's the greatest determinant of longevity we're learning now is the power of connection. And that's something we can all action. I mean, that's why I think it is so hopeful. Um, if you think of uh, the, you know, people who die from suicide, like that, that should never happen. Mm -hmm. One is too many. Mm -hmm. yeah and that's increasing increasing at rapid numbers yes i mean that is you know despair mm -hmm. and i people who have such thoughts of despair tend to feel very isolated and, and lonely and hopeless and and don't see a way out mm -hmm. what you're saying um with having the connection with other people some people frown upon this, some others don't. And so what is your thought about having one of your people or people be those that you work with? Well, um, I'm sure there are lots of different schools of thought about that. What I would say is the research tells us the connection and fostering relations in the workplace, relationships in the workplace is really healthy. So that doesn't mean go tell everybody and everything at work. But even having one friend at work reduces the risk of burnout by 41%. Wow. wow. So I absolutely think those relationships are worth cultivating. That makes sense. Well, because we all want to belong and be part of something and know that someone else cares if we show up. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think of it, it's different when you're telling someone who knows what you're talking about versus like when I talk to Arielle, because she's a fellow counselor, she knows when I'm talking about certain things versus if I'm talking to another friend who works in finance, like she doesn't know what I'm talking about. So even though I get that opportunity to like talk and process, it's different when I talk to Arielle who actually knows. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think about like when you have someone who works at the same place as you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And there are all different ways to do that. How do you foster those connections at work? There's, there's all kinds of actions that people can take. I mean, it's sometimes as simple as just being proactive and reaching out and disclosing just a little bit, being a little vulnerable, sharing. Um, in, in reference to the question you asked a minute ago, one, one, topic that I will hear, not necessarily like where are all the people or how do you find the people, but those who come from a, a point of like, well, no one's a good friend to me. People aren't reaching out to me. And that sort of victim mindset, you know, it can feel that way. And 
what I try to do is encourage people to say, well, how are you being a friend to them? What's something that you can do to demonstrate kindness? Because guess what? If you go out and be kind and proactive and smile at people, you're going to get a different response. Yeah. I love that. I'm curious. Um, what are your thoughts on a four-day work week? Does it improve <laughs> mental well-being? <laughs> that is a hot topic, isn't it? The future of work. Um, I, I also think it depends. I think, um, I think having a manageable workload and a manageable work schedule to ensure work-life balance, even though I don't love that term, I think is absolutely important for productivity and effectiveness. I think people have different ways of operating and different rhythms of working. So for some people, yes, it's probably better. And for other lifestyles, they may not prefer it. So I just, I don't think there's a one size fits all way of working. Mm -hmm. I do think it would be probably serve us all, you know, on the whole, if there was a little freedom in the framework. So some jobs are going to lend better to flexible schedules than others. A surgeon can't really work at home. That doesn't work out very well if you actually need to be in the operating room. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's going to be a range of limitations that that some jobs have to offer. But there's this idea of job crafting where if you if you have to be in person for your job, for example, maybe there are some other things that you can do or that your organization can offer that 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 provide a different level of flexibility. What would an example of that be? Um, so like job crafting, it would be um, one example, they do this at Google, you know, where they give people X percentage of their bandwidth to go work on a passion project. So they're, they take that out of their their regular work commitments, and then they're able to go do like a special project and work on work on that. And that that special project would still need to be work related or benefit Google in some way, but it's more something they really want to do versus what Google has assigned to them to do. Yes, yes, and organizations I think are 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 trying to find other ways to help foster people's sense of purpose and offering paid volunteer time. So you can go volunteer in your community and the company will sponsor you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that's a mutually beneficial win-win for everybody because we also know being of service enhances our own well-being. If I am, as long as I'm not compromising my rest and my health, if I do something in service to you, I feel good about it and then you feel good about it. And then we all feel good. Absolutely. The company I work for, they actually do that incentive and I absolutely love it. And that's one of the, and actually, um, now that I think about it, talking to you, um, it hits several categories, like you just said. So I get to do something nice for someone. Um, I get to fellowship with my coworkers and us all doing something together. And, you know, I'm still working, you know, for the company doing something that they would like us to do. Um, So it's just a win, 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 win. It is a multiplier in that way. And I love that you mentioned the fellowship because yes, doing it together is better. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Um, So you have an event coming up and we want to hear about it. We want our corkies to hear about it. So what do you have coming up in May? 
Yes, so uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, as you know, and I am doing an online class. I've done, a, I do a lot of coaching groups and this format is a little bit different, um, but we've, we've learned that learning about our mental health and well-being in and of itself, that education in and of itself helps enhance mental health and well-being. And I've studied these things for so long. And part of the, the thing in promoting this course is like, I study all this and figure out what are the evidence-based ideas and the science-backed mechanisms that we can all look at so that you don't have to. So I collate and curate it all. And I just have learned, you know, which components of it tend to be the most helpful for people. So I'm doing like a two-day class just three, it's like, it's sort of like a retreat format or, you know, kind of short um, Friday and a Saturday for three hours and then follow-up meetings. So for the two days, it's going to be intensive, like information, go through the curriculum about your stress management, stress response system, and some of these levers to pull to enhance mental health. And it's done as a cohort. So you learn in community because we know that that works best. And we also know that people change best with follow-up. And so I structured it so that we have this, you know, intake of information and then follow-up meetings for social commitment, shared accountability, accompanying one another, being able to apply it into our lives and then and then come back and share. That is that is how we know we learn and develop best is if we're doing it in community and we have structure and accountability in place. Love it, love that it. And the dates amazing. for it are May. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yes, I'm. I'm like, awesome on that one. May it's Friday. May I should know this offhand. Good grief. May no, May twelfth and May thirteenth. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So everyone has some time to look at their calendar and get registered. And we definitely, for all our Corkies, will be blasting it on our social media. So look forward to hearing all about her fabulous course um, on our Instagram, on our Facebook, and I definitely will link it in the YouTube video as well. So. Yes. Thank you. I would love to see some Corkies there. And I hope that you'll you'll publish a discount code. So I will offer them all 50% off. Yes. Oh, yes. Definitely. Okay. Y'all heard that, Corgis? Y'all better come on. <laughs> and if you show up, please show yourselves, name yourselves. Yes, <laughs> definitely for sure. So outside of that, how can they get in touch with you? Um, yeah, I love hearing from people. My website is drkarendahl.com, drkarendahl.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Build, Building Psychological Fitness. I'm on uh, Instagram and Facebook. And I try to use those just as ways to get the message out of mental health awareness and um and then my my book i have uh study guides for people who uh incorporate that in their book club i'm hearing that that's super helpful too so you can find that on my info as well awesome thank, thank you so you. much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us today thank you for having me and thank you for hosting all of these really important conversations Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much.
Okay. Well, we'll talk to you soon. And Corkies, check out the discount code in the bio on this episode. You can find it there. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. We, alongside BetterHelp, want you to start living a healthier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MHU to join over the 1 million people who have taken control of their mental health. This code will allow 10% off your subscription. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M-H-U. Hi, Corkies. Please, please, please follow us on all social media outlets. We're on Instagram at Mental Health Uncorked. We're on YouTube at Mental Health Uncorked. We're on Twitter at MHU the podcast. And you can also email us at mentalhealthuncorked at gmail.com. Like, share, subscribe. Thank you.